Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. It's terrifying. Imagine if you ran into one of these malevolent ones. The closest you would probably get is to go watch one of these horror movies. Because I believe that the demonic influence is what is going to inspire these artists to come up with the demonic creatures that they're coming up with. They can be influential, but they're nothing to us. We are to communicate with our creator. And then it's his business to deal with them. Like I say, there's certain things that we can do that create a vulnerability. And that's why we have the book of Leviticus, so that we learn, it is written, this is how I can manage maybe a time, like for women after childbirth. She's given specific commandments for purification. If you you touch a dead person, if you touch a corpse, there's certain ways to manage that, that vulnerability. Because remember, when you're outside your realm, you're dealing with death. And so it's teaching us, don't do these specific things or do do these specific things to make sure that you're protected from those influences. Basically, there's three things that we can do to protect ourselves. These things that are not of our realm, if they are looking for a place to hang out, holiness will repel them. That's why, you know, they with Jews, they start teaching their children Leviticus first. They teach them, they say, teach the holy to the holy. Holies to the holy. And that's important. Holiness has to be defined by the word, not I think I feel I want. Only by the word. Secondly is righteousness as defined by the word. This is why we come to salvation in Yeshua, so that he can teach us his righteousness, which will protect us. Yeshua never had demon problems, ever. He could do the hard ones. He could do a hundred of them at a time. No problem. They listened to him. Why? Because he was a perfect human being. He was righteous in every way. And that's why we want to conform to his righteousness. He teaches us how to walk in the clean places and even how to stay clean when we have to walk in unclean places to get through it. And so all of the word, all the instructions of the word, if we're walking in that righteousness by faith, then it's reckoned to us as righteousness. Even where we might fall down on the job sometimes. Remember, it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. You get righteousness credits if you're still learning. Where you say, well, I don't know all of Leviticus yet. You have righteousness that's reckoned to you. But once you encounter it, you can't say, well, that's just too much trouble. That's just too much bother. That sounds silly. Why would I do that? Once you encounter it, now you become accountable for it. You need to walk in it or it's going to create vulnerability. (coughs) Excuse me. And third, you already know this, reading the word, praying, especially praying the word, or singing, praise and worship. Remember young David, 
Saul would have these evil spirits that would oppress him, he would call in David to play the Psalms on the harps and it would drive it away temporarily, but Saul wouldn't make the heart changes that would keep them away. So when they come into our realm, they're considered unclean. What attracts them is our soul. And the soul in Hebrew is nefesh. Remember, scripture says the life is in the blood. That's the nefesh. The nefesh, the soul, is in the blood. So this is what demons, air quotes, feed on. Because demons don't eat like we eat. If a demon wants to eat, what does it have to do? It's got to get in you. <laughs> That's the only way a demon's going to eat what we eat, is if a demon's in us. <coughs> so they're attracted to the souls of human beings. In that blood, appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect. Those are the things they thrive on. And when we don't manage them according to the word, that's when we're creating the meal. That's when we're putting food on the table of the demon. And so we have to be especially careful of things that have to do with blood. Leviticus is very focused on managing blood, including violence, Hamas. Bloodshed, blood lust, anything to do with blood, we need to be managing it according to scripture. Impure sexual activity will attract demonic activity. Appetites, desires that are out of control, out of balance, they can become addictions. This is where demonic activity will thrive because you can be easily manipulated in that case. <coughs> emotions out of control. Have we ever let our emotions run away with us? Even the priests in the temple had a limit to how much they could grieve. They couldn't have a total excess of emotions and be that close to the presence of Adonai. So can you grieve? Yes, you can. And the last thing is going to be thoughts. You can invite this activity with prideful thoughts. Anything that's going to lift itself above the word. And so if you're entertaining, violating the word, where does it start? In your head. <clears throat> you see it. You start to entertain it instead of taking it captive. So you're giving access when you do that. And this is where you can be manipulated because in the word is life. And we call it the tree of life. It is a tree of life to those who take hold of it. And Lot was not wanting to take hold of that. <coughs> but it's protection, especially against the lies, especially against the lies. Because it starts with lies that are pleasing to the soul, comforting to the soul. So look at how, remember the holy altar? The, what is offered on the holy altar is called the food of your God. And we say, well, wait a minute, Adonai doesn't eat food. But what does he consume? Your devotion. When you bring this blood, you bring this animal in your place. And you're saying, 
I'm bringing, I'm opening myself up to you. Rather than being my own God and making up my own laws, I submit to yours. So I bring this animal in place. And in our case, we're bringing the blood of Yeshua. And we're saying, okay, we're bringing you the blood. We're not going to offer it to an idol. We're bringing it to you. So we're opening our souls, appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect. We're saying, Father, you transform it. You manipulate, manipulate us. I don't want to be manipulated by a demon. I want to be manipulated into doing holy things and righteous things. So we're saying, purify my soul. Make my soul holy. Make it acceptable to you. Make your thoughts my thoughts. Make your desires my desires. And we spend our whole lives doing that, by the way. But if you offer it to a demon, if you offer it to a shade, or one of the Elilim, or one of the others that are mentioned, now you're activating something that was nothing into something. You're inviting it to manipulate your soul the same way the holy altar invites the Father to come in and manipulate our souls. Instead, you turn to this demon and you say, okay, come on in. Now you've got access to me. Start to affect the way I think. Start to affect the things I want. Start to affect the way I feel. And it will. If you keep inviting it, eventually it'll come in. And the consequences is that as they feed on this, this is what they're feeding on. They don't feed like human beings. But what is it they're attracted to? You're giving it a soul that it doesn't have. It can't experience the same things you do because remember, it has form, but it doesn't have matter. The only way that creature is going to experience what we experience is if it finds a host, a willing host. And what will happen? You'll become more bloodthirsty. You'll become more immoral sexually. You'll become more addicted. Your thinking will become more twisted. Everything that's there gets worse. And when you concentrate that within a particular group of people, it might be one particular sin. It's not usually just one sin, but there might be one that's more noticeable than others. The one I'm thinking about right now is notable for bloodlust. Their whole goal in life is to raise up killers, murderers. That's all they want to do is kill people, a particular people, but eventually the people who think they're not on that list will find out they are. Because when you let these things in, there's different types of them. Yeshua teaches this as well in Matthew 12, 45. Remember, it started out with an unclean spirit. It says, then it goes, if you cast it out, it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. <clears throat> and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. So it can start out just dabbling in unclean things. It might start out with just dabbling. Don't let your kids put skulls on their chest of drawers. Yeah. Don't let them dabble because it's unclean. 
they're dabbling in a realm that they shouldn't be touching. Eventually, it's going to attract, you say, look, it's just like vacancy on a motel. There's a vacancy sign flashing here. Come on in. Because there's things you can feed on in here. And so <clears throat> as you're looking at the different types of demonic activity, remember, number one, it's nothing to you. So we're preaching to the choir here. But for those who are dabbling in unclean things, or worse, inviting them on purpose, by practicing the things that we're talking about, the degree of wickedness will continue to increase. You might go from a shade whose basic goal in life, or whatever its life is, it basically oppresses. It bothers you because it's feeding on something that you're giving it through your soul. It's feeding on your soul. Appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect. You can identify something in one of those four categories that it's feeding on, that it's attracted to. It's probably not going to try to kill you. Because if it kills the host, it can't keep feeding on it. You won't keep doing the things you're doing that it likes to feed on. But there's a worse class, like Yeshua talked about. And these are called uh, dibuk. And it comes from the Hebrew verb devak, which means to cling, like to latch on to. These would be the ones that would come on in that he's talking about. Seven, they're more wicked because these don't care if you die. They'll try to kill you. Especially, I mean, look at the demoniac. He had a bunch of those things in him, and he was both trying to kill other people and himself. And so they're not just feeding off the host. Because they don't process information the same way we do, they're, they're of a different species. I don't know if they understand they're trying to kill you or if they don't understand, but they don't care. They will kill you in the end. And so we have to pay attention to the word to manage these things. And so Revelation prophesies that in Revelation 16, out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, Three unclean spirits like frogs, where they're the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world. This is going to be a worldwide lie, guys. To gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty, it's going to be beyond any logic or reason. They're not going to be able to look back at the history and say, well, Israel prevailed in 48. They prevailed in 67. They prevailed in 73. They're not going to process that. It's not going to make any sense. They're still going to believe, like Pharaoh, that they can annihilate. The bloodlust generated from this lie will be so great. It'll sweep around the world. And it's going to draw them in the same way that Pharaoh was drawn in. This time it says the Euphrates will be dried up to make way for the kings of the east. So if it's the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, the serpent is the deceiver. He's the liar. He's going to formulate the lie. The beast, remember, is the human soul. Apart from the discipline and the truth of the Holy Spirit, it's just got a soul like an animal does. Animals have souls too. That's why demons 
if they don't have a choice, if they can't get a human, they'll go into a pig because an animal does have a soul. They can feed on it. It's just not as sophisticated, not as apparently as much fun as a human being. Yeah. You know, if you're having a demon party or whatever. <laughs> and then the third is the false prophet. And remember when we did the lesson on false prophets, we looked at the literature and it says, okay, this is a person who intentionally speaks a word or performs a sign that leads people away from the word of God. And it says, <clears throat> they, uh, this false prophet says, testify to a man uh, concerning something that he saw with his own eyes or claim to have seen something different than what he saw. In other words, you will know this thing. You will have seen this thing. And then the false prophet will tell you, oh, that's not what you saw. This false prophet is coming with signs and wonders to contradict something you have seen with your own eyes, it says. And since we only believe in wonders because of the commandments that Moses commanded, how can we accept this sign that is being brought to contradict the prophecy of Moses that we saw and heard? So he will tell you, no, the word itself is not truth. No, that covenant with Abraham is not eternal. No, that covenant was not to his descendants. No, that land does not belong to them. No, human beings draw the lines. That's what the liar will say. No matter what you read with your own eyes in the word, this lie will contradict that word. Even though you've seen it with your own eyes. Those who are determined to believe that will believe it. He won't stop them. If they want to continue believing the lies, these frogs are going to spread lies that to a logical mind are clearly lies. But see, logic isn't going to be a factor anymore. Our guide to truth is based on it is written. To those who want to believe the frogs, it is written as incomprehensible. They don't even consult it. You never hear that at a demonstration. The Bible says, no, you're not going to hear that. It doesn't fit their chosen twist of heart and mind. And it's interesting that the Jewish scholars discussed, was it one frog or was it a lot of frogs that went throughout Egypt? Yes. Yes. <laughs> they say it was many frogs, but they say it was one frog. And all of a sudden it spawned millions and billions of frogs. What is that saying? It's one lie. It's all going to be prefaced on one lie. And it's going to spawn itself across the world into many frogs. Many, many false witnesses. Because remember, there's Egypt, the people, and there's Egypt, the entity. There was the crossing at the Reed Sea there. And the language is really strange as they approach the Reed Sea. It says that they took off his chariot wheel. What, weren't there 600 chariots? Mm -hmm. But they took off one wheel. Adonai took off one wheel, and that destroyed the whole Egyptian army. And then the Egyptians say, well, look, the God of Israel is fighting against the Egyptians. Now, why would the Egyptians say he's fighting against the Egyptians if they are the Egyptians? But it goes back to Egypt. Sometimes the translators will translate it out because they say, well, there's a grammar problem here. There wasn't a grammar problem. Egypt pursued them. Yes. Egypt, one, singular, not many. One pursued them. One frog, many frogs. 
One Egypt, many Egypts. One lie, many lies. It says they were all of one heart. They were pursuing with one heart and one mind in this bloodlust. The world is going to pursue Israel with one heart and one mind in this bloodlust. And we know it's the same lie because it doesn't matter what language you translate it into around the world, you'll see the same slogans. You'll see the same tropes just in that language. You'll see the same symbols. And you will see them misconstrue and reconstruct fact and history exactly the same. It's one lie spawning a lot of frogs. And so if we pair that up with what we know of the tzira, that hell bug, that torments for five months, I tend to think that in its, I think it's already out there, but I think in its huge numbers, it will be loosed the last, the day after Sukkot, which it kind of was. Because there's five months. It says they'll torment for five months. There's five months between the last feast and Pesach. Five dark months. Those are the winter months. And their job, remember, is just to torment. And I believe there are people right now who are marking themselves for torment, confusion, not just blind, confused blind, where logic and reason isn't going to help them. They've hardened their hearts. <clears throat> Revelation 16.3 says, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. It's the plague of blood. It's the first plague again. And it's setting the stage. There's going to be bloodlust. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were a holy one because you judged these things. They poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Drink up. When you pursue in bloodlust, you will be given blood to drink. And you deserve it. That's what the scripture says. Why would the altar agree? Even the, the angel over the waters. You know, we talk about principalities and powers. The angel over the waters. Remember the waters, the seas can mean the nations. He's like, I have to agree. I have to agree that this judgment goes forth. The altar, who's under the altar? The righteous souls. Their blood has been poured out, and they have to agree. There's nobody interceding for Sodom at that point. There's nobody interceding for Babylon at that point. They said, yes, O Lord. Almighty, true, and righteous are your judgments. So a people, an army united in bloodlust, they will be judged with blood. And so that brings us back to the Torah portion. How had Sodom and the other four cities, how had they generated such a degree of wickedness that they had to be completely wiped out? Idols. They gave themselves over <clears throat> to idols. And what Lot finds is he's got a riot. He's got a demonstration outside his house. Remember the plague of wild beasts? And we said it, it's, they're like mercenaries. They don't even have a personal investment in the issue. They might be so far removed from the issue, you're like, why do you care? But they do. 
because it's one lie that's drawing them in. They have been feeding their idols, and it's getting ready to feed on them. In social justice, you might demonstrate for a just cause. You might demonstrate for even what we would say is a religious cause. But if we look at the history frequently, it's not a just cause. It's a twisted cause, and it's an opportunity for the swarms of wild beasts to attack. Historically, they have attacked people of faith. They don't attack the people just as wicked as they are. They attack the righteous like the angels. They attack the righteous like Lot. And then it freezes up everybody else because if I say something, they'll attack me. And they keep you captive that way. And so we know that these cities can generate demonic activity to the point that they're irretrievable. Revelation 18, too, it says he cried out with a mighty voice saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. All kinds of demons. And it says all the nations have drunk that wine. They're going to be pulled in. They've committed acts of immorality, sensuality. It says for in this reason, for this reason in one day, her plagues will come. The Lord God who judges her is strong. So the prayer of Abraham. <clears throat> now that we know, in hindsight, we don't want to judge biblical people too harshly because they didn't have hindsight. But this, some of the sages say, now, wait a minute, this prayer that Abraham prayed, was that the best prayer to pray? Abraham's known for loving kindness, like I love you no matter what. But is there a balance to that? Is there justice? Because we're a generation, all we ever want to hear is, I love you and everything you do is okay. We're the product of the I'm okay, you're okay generation, right? We're not okay if we're violating the word. And they say, knowing how wicked these cities were, was there a better prayer to pray? Because Peter tells us, the Lord knows how to rescue the righteous. He knows how. Would it have been better that Abraham pray that the if there were righteous, even ten, that the angels would take them out too? Their hearts would be moved in repentance that they would leave the cities? These are good prayers. Because if you know the wickedness, that the bloodlust of a city has built to a certain point, that it's irretrievable. See, Abraham's not even arguing for repentance for the whole population. It's like he knows that much. They're not going to repent. They're that wicked. But it says, what about, just let it keep, just let the wickedness keep going on for the sake of 10 people. Now it sounds a little crazy, doesn't it? But he does. And I think this is the way we have to pray as we see judgments beginning to come down. As we begin to see what I would say is the tribulation of our generation. I don't know if it's the big one, but I know it's one. And I know it's following a lot of these patterns that we've been studying. And so, yes, I want to intercede for places where everybody says, well, there's innocent people there. Well, if there's innocent people there, we need to be praying for them, number one. But number two, we don't need to be praying that the wicked won't be destroyed. We need to pray that however it can happen, 
if it's an angel taking those people by the hand and leading them out where nobody can see them or hurt them, pray for that. If it's a supernatural shield over them and their children, pray for that. Adonai knows how to rescue the righteous, and we have to believe that word. He knows how. I don't know how to fix them. I don't know how to save them, but I know the one who does. And if there are innocents, I pray that supernaturally they would escape judgment. That's all I know to do. But I do know this. Judgment is coming. Right now we're seeing it through military forces, like human force. But clearly Revelation is prophesying of a heavenly army, a heavenly force that will far surpass anything that could be fired in terms of a missile, a rocket, a bomb, a bullet. It'll far exceed that. We're talking about something that'll just simply incinerate people where they stand. Like Nadav and Avihu went into the holy place. They weren't invited in there. They got incinerated. And they were priests. Imagine how much more when a wicked person tries to stand in a holy place. One second too long. So I know that's a little heavy. So in the last, like I would say, several lessons off and on, We've referred to these creatures that John describes in the book of Revelation um, that he has difficulty describing. And we know these are the tzila. Tzila. If you're trying to spell that in English, um, the transliteration would be T-Z-I-R-A-H. I just like to call them hellbugs um, this, because I think everybody has a picture of those bugs. Uh, being released in the millions coming up out of uh, Abaddon during tribulation. And they're, they're part of the tribulation. They're part of the judgment of tribulation. And so as we've worked through the, the 10 plagues, again, as they uh, fit into the, the framework of the wars of kings, the siege tactics of kings, that we can expect to see in the last days and, and how they're parallel to the 10 plagues in Egypt. Part of that mixture, of course, is that the, the war is going to lead back to the land of Israel itself. Israel is, is going to be a cup of trembling. And that's going to be the, the place where the whole world is focused at that time. And so the, the 10 plagues of Egypt clearly took place within the borders of Egypt. And we also know that the prophets refer to the current exile as uh, the wilderness of the nations, the wilderness of Egypt. So there's something about the exile among the nations that is going to be similar to the exile in Egypt that the Hebrews experienced. And so we can expect that those plagues will fall upon the wilderness of the nations in the same way that they fell upon the, the borders within the borders of Egypt. However, if, if we're going to link again, that pretty much it sounds like most of the nations of the world will eventually attack Israel. 
then we can take it a step farther, exactly like what John is seeing in the book of Revelation, where um, he sees an additional plague. And in fact, as we went through the plagues um, and the wars of kings, the siege tactics, we saw how this particular hell bug was part of those plagues. We saw that there was quite a bit of overlapping of plagues or overlapping of punishments, that they didn't necessarily come in the same order and they don't need to. We've talked about that's one of the principles of, principles of prophecy is that not necessarily when a prophecy is repeated, will it be identical? In fact, the odds are very slim that it would be identical, but it will have the same earmarks. It will have the same benchmarks. And so that's why it's really easy to find the 10 plagues of Egypt in the book of Revelation, because yes, it's a repetition of something, a prophecy that's occurred in the past, but it doesn't need to be identical to be a repetition. It's going to suit the generation uniquely. And the generation of the Hebrews, they were in exile in a specific nation called Egypt. But this final exile, bringing Israel back from the, the wilderness of the peoples, the wilderness of Egypt, that's going to be a matter of uh, the plagues extending to the entire world. And so there we, we might uh, say, well, these bugs that John sees coming out of Abaddon and the book of Revelation it does not sound as though this time they will be confined to the clearing of the land. It could be that these bugs are actually dispatched in those huge numbers for the very reason that they are going out into the wilderness of the peoples. Uh, because part of bringing Israel out of Egypt was to bring them into a specific land that had specific boundaries, specific borders. And um, if, if you want to know where to find that, of course, uh, Deuteronomy 7.20 describes the tzilah, uh, certainly not as in as much vivid description as John does, but it says, moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet, that's going to be the English translation of tzilah, against them until those who are left and hide themselves from you perish. Right? So, yes, this is an army, but it's not a human army. It's not a natural army. It's a supernatural army. And whereas a human army often has trouble finding enemies who hide themselves, especially enemies that hide themselves and pop out of holes and shoot and pop back into the hole, very difficult to find them when they conceal themselves under buildings like hospitals and schools and playgrounds. But in this particular judgment, there's really no risk to the human army because it's a supernatural army that goes in after the enemy who is hiding. And the torment uh, of these bugs is apparently so bad, and that's their job. Remember, at first, their job is not to kill. It's only to torment for five months. Now, it doesn't mean that you won't eventually die. Clearly you will if you don't repent during the, the torment. The point of the torment is to bring you to repentance. Like, stop what you're doing. This is going to be really easy, folks. You don't want to be tormented. You don't want to be blind. 
Uh, you don't want to be confused all the time. You don't want to be anxious. You don't want to be afraid. Really, all you have to do is repent. Stop. Just stop what you're doing. Stop the bloodlust. Stop the sexual immorality. Stop the, the greediness. Stop the self-serving. Stop trying to make yourself your own creator. And just respect Adonai. Respect him as your creator and say, not my will, but yours be done. It stops the torment. That's the point of the torment, to bring you to repentance. But if you're not willing to come to repentance, then you'll hide anywhere and everywhere to try to get away from the torment. Because see, there's something inside of every human being, and that is the breath of Elohim. And it's truth. There's a spirit of truth inside every human being. If it's not in them, they're dead. Because the spirit went back to the one who created them. And so when your soul is in total control, when you're the red one, when you're Esau, when you're Edom, then what is happening is you are drowning out the voice of your spirit. You're drowning out the voice of Elohim in your life. And as long as that voice is there, as long as you're alive, there will be something of that voice that becomes a super torment. And the more wicked you become, the more, more tormented you will become because there is something inside of you that's that's fighting against the wickedness that's trying to move in and take over your life. And so at the point you keep hardening, 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 it's getting harder and harder for you to even hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. Like we defined a false prophet. Remember, a false prophet is one who says that he saw or heard things that he did not see or hear. They didn't happen. And in fact, there will be a, a large number of people, as we look at some of the discussions that the rabbis are having about that context, there'll be large numbers of people who have seen the truth and they know it's not true what they're telling. They know the false witnesses. They know the frogs are croaking. It's not the truth. They've seen it with their very own eyes. They've heard it with their very own eyes. Like, how could you even construe this this way? How could you even make this out of this? It is because they're continuing to harden their hearts. As they continue to do that, John describes a, a point in tribulation when the hell bugs are going to be loosed on them. And we know that those hell bugs are loosed for five months. Now we're not told which five. We can make an educated guess. We don't know for sure, but we can make an educated guess. As we look at the way that the, the year is sectioned, according to the Moedim, which were put in place on the fourth day of creation by the creator, not by Julian, not by Pope Gregory, by Adonai, those Moedim were set into place, those feast days were set within certain seasons and months. And so there's a seven-month period where we would say that is your feast season, beginning with Passover, Pesach, and then continuing until the last day of Sukkot. That's a seven-month period. This year, the last day of Sukkot began a war. And then what happens is you have five dark months. The You enter into Cheshbon, which is Bul. Uh, one of the, the names in it in scripture is Bul, which means a flood. Uh, Mavul is a flood. And again, that I don't know if it's happenstance, 
But if, if that's what the terrorists want to call it, a flood, then a flood it is. But we know where that flood of wickedness is going to end. The earth is going to swallow it up. It's going to, it's going to spare the righteous. It's going to make a safe place in the wilderness for the righteous. But for those who won't repent, there is the confusion of the tzirah, of the hell book. So, yes, Deuteronomy describes uh, how the hell bug was used to drive out the enemy. That was the plan is, you know, you really don't have to lose a bunch of soldiers. I'm going to send something in that's much more powerful than any weaponry you have. And it's going to throw a great confusion upon them to where they'll they'll run and try to hide in their holes in the ground. But it won't be because of a human weapon. It'll be because of a supernatural torment. And this thing, what does it look like? Well, it might look like a hornet. It might look like a locust. It might look like a horse. It might look like a scorpion. It might look like a serpent. It might look like a human being. Uh, might look like a man, but it might have hair like a woman. And so you can see that John is trying to describe to us that has a form, but it doesn't have matter, right? It's it's created for another realm. And even though it's under the supervision of the king of Abaddon, the king Elohim, the king of kings, who commands the king of Abaddon, Abaddon is appointed over that realm to do whatever it is he's doing, none of our business, in this case, it's revealed to us what he does. He controls how these uh, creatures are dispatched to torment human beings who will not repent. And in this particular case, the, the focal point, the, the target, that's the word, the target of the tzirah is going to be those who are obstacles who are enemies, who are making a claim to the land that was only theirs temporarily. And that's why we started out a couple of weeks ago talking about these promises to Abraham. These are foundational. If you don't understand the promises to Abraham, then nothing else in history makes a whole lot of sense. But once you understand the promises to Abraham, everything starts to make sense. It really is about the land, the covenant, and the people, that the people who live by the covenant, they have an appointed land. And then in, in Joshua 24, 12, the, the work of the tzirah was also mentioned in Joshua, because remember, it was Joshua's responsibility to conquer the land. Moses helped conquer the things on the east side of the Jordan, the kings over there, using the tzirah. And now Joshua has to cross the Jordan. And how is he going to defeat the Canaanite kings who have been given the land for a specific time period? But he says, you know, the wickedness of the, the Amorites is not yet full. But once it's full, once they've reached their full cup of wickedness, they need to go. That's as long as their lease is. The lease is up. How will we know when the lease is up? Well, part of the the signal to us would be when the tzira is dispatched and supernatural things begin to happen to drive out the Canaanite kings. And that's what he says. I sent the tzira before you and it drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you, but not by your sword 
or your bow. So yes, if we begin to hear reports of supernatural victories where the enemy is put on the run, but not really by the force of the military. In fact, probably the military would be standing there thinking, why are they running? What's happened to them? Are they crazy? Well, yes, they kind of are crazy. Because remember how the tzila works, working in conjunction now with these siege tactics. The plagues, which originally occurred outside the land, are going to hit the world. But the focal point is going to be this return to the descendants of Abraham to their land. And so these two war tactics, the plagues and the work of the tzira, this supernatural hornet, this, I'm not going to call it a demon. I mean, it's doing a job. Uh, it's just not of our realm. But remember, they work two ways. First, they torment and confuse. They cause immense anxiety because there's a darkness associated with their work. And by darkness, it's it's severe mental confusion. And it's not at random. It's It's not just out of the clear blue, like you look like a victim. Again, it's somebody who is hardening their heart, somebody who has been not managing the instructions of the word in his or her life, who in fact are turning a deaf ear. And so the, the proliferation of bloodlust, again, that, that hatred, that's going to produce some specific results. And the specific result is going to be confusion, anxiety, and torment. That's the first thing it does during this five months of activity of darkness. And then the second thing they do, we say at first that their job is not to kill you. It's just to torment you. Just to torment. It's basically torture before dying. The second job is that they will cut off the root and the fruit. They'll cut off the root and the fruit. And a weirdly, it's not like that hasn't already gone on. Because those who are being attacked by the tzila, I believe that many of them are marked by the worship of molech. Molech. Remember, the, those who would pass their children through the fire to molech, they would sacrifice their children for their own purposes. They would turn their children, they would turn the, the weak into the fire to be burned, to be tormented, and to be killed for their own purposes, for their own twisted purposes. And so they've been destroying their own fruit. However, at this point, once the, the tzila enters into the equation, there will be a destruction of reproduction systems and offspring or fruit. In other words, they won't be, there will be a cessation of spawning these activities that cause the tzila to be turned loose on turn loose on them and to torment them. Whatever lies, it's like everybody's petrified right here. If you were telling lies up to this point, you're not going to change your mind. There's not much thinking. There's not much repentance that's going to go on. But it doesn't appear, once the tzira is unleashed, that they're going to be adding to their numbers of deceived. It's like everything is partitioned at that point. Everything is going to be said. These are the righteous. These are the wicked. <laughs> I don't know what the intermediates, they seem to be in real jeopardy, according to the, the message to Laodicea. 
but we want to be numbered among the righteous. We don't want to be generating behaviors that are going to make us the target of the tzur. And here's the thing to remember about the tzur. And even these, these plagues, the 10 plagues in the Wars of Kings, we know that the tzura is, is now being added on top of the 10 plagues in the book of Revelation and what we would call Great Tribulation. When it says that they're, they're going to torment people for five months, we know that after the fall feasts, we have five consecutive months because they're in the winter, they're dark months until Passover. We know that this attack was originally planned on a Passover, but it got changed. And instead, it occurred on the final day of Sukkot, Simchat Torah, rejoicing in the Torah. And so they wanted to turn it into a rejoicing of anti-Torah. Everything the Torah tells you not to do, they wanted to do. And we know that the burning of Sodom, since we've been talking about Sodom, that takes place during the days of unleavened bread, because we know Lot baked unleavened bread for the angels. So I would say, looking at the judgments on Egypt, going out at Passover, the destruction of Sodom at Passover, this coming Passover, we need to be prayed up. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.